right. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, sorry we didn't intend to have a light show, but sometimes, you know, they have a mind of their own. So um, if you are if you're distracted by whatever happens up there, just, you know, move on. It's not that exciting. <laughs> all right. We don't intend for them to be flashing anyway. Um, it is good to be with you this morning. I appreciate Lance uh, stepping in there for Gene. We've asked Lance and Brian in particular to do that um, because uh, it's not long before we're going to be choosing our new leaders, okay? And some of those new leaders are going to be deacon teams and some of those leaders are going to be elders, or at least they're going to be put forth as our slate of nominees. So uh, I hope you're going to continue to pray. Make sure if you haven't met them, at least you're talking to them and you're asking them questions and you're getting to know them because these are the folks that you're entrusting to kind of be part of the day-to-day leadership that happens at Grace Christian Fellowship. We are a church that is led not by one person, by a plurality of elders, which is what we think we see in the New Testament. So that means that there's a team that works together. So there's accountability. There's, we're covering blind spots. We've got each other's backs. And then we're accountable to you. And so there's, there's lots of that, that leads to transparency, accountability, and hopefully faithfulness in all that we do. And that's our aim and that's our desire, that we would not take for granted the trust you've given your leaders, that we would exercise it with great humility and um, confidence that you're praying for us, but also that you're a part of the selection process. So it's so important. So that's October 30th. That's the day we will do that. Members will vote. Um, We don't vote on many things around here, but this one's super, super important. So I hope you'll continue to be praying about that. So thank you, Lance, for uh, talking to us about uh, those things um, a few minutes ago. We are starting a new series, kind of, okay? I'm just being transparent, right? We are doing a six-week experiment called Friends and Family Groups, where we are encouraging people to step up and host a group of people in their home or in the office where they work or at the park or in a coffee shop with other folks to talk about the life of Jesus based on what we're preaching through on Sunday mornings. So in one sense, we're doing a new series, and it's called King and Countries, hence the little video bumper there, to kind of say we're going to focus in and drill in on what Matthew is focusing in and on in chapters 8 through 14 in that area, okay? But if you remember, uh, so I'll be starting in chapter 9 today, really, so 9 through 14. Last week, we finished... Matthew 8. So if you'll notice, there's a little continuity also, okay? That's by design. The point isn't to create a a series so that we can get you to do something as much as it is to say, for those who maybe aren't doing life with us on a regular basis and they step in in this six weeks, they are part of something that is designed to help them kind of understand contextually um, what what Jesus' life is about. And so we're giving them a six-week snapshot of what's part of a bigger picture, the book of Matthew, which is part of a bigger picture, which is the New Testament, which is part of a bigger picture, which is the whole Bible, which is part of the story of God, right? We are all part of the story of God. You have a story, I have a story, and we're part of this master narrative that God has initiated that we get to be a part of. Because no one's here by accident. God cast, right? He did the casting for this story. And you and I all have a part. The question is, what are we going to do with our part? We get to have some say in that. So this is fun. It's exciting. And um, hopefully it's a bit sobering too. So King and Countries, is, if you're, you might even recognize that a little bit. Um, we're going to talk a lot about what we've already been talking about, which makes sense because that's what Matthew's talking about, and that's all that we're really focused on. What is God saying through Matthew? And that is that Jesus has all authority so that all nations... 
might pledge all allegiance to him. And that's appropriate. And he's drilling down on that pretty big in chapters 8 and 9. And if you remember, we said that in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew is, is kind of springing from the Sermon on the Mount, and he's, he's really given us a picture of what does the kingdom of God look like? Not just what are Jesus' words about it, which are spoken and preached and taught with authority, but what authority does he carry that gives credence to what he's saying? And so we get miracles and triplets. We get three miracles and then two discipleship principles. Then three miracles and two discipleship principles. And then he ends chapter 9 with three more miracles. So we're kind of in the middle of that, okay? And we're going to continue through that, all right? Um, today, the big idea is um, how to be forgiven, Okay, You might say, well, haven't we already talked about it? Yeah, Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins, right? How many times have we prayed a prayer like the Lord's Prayer? We forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses. Just forgive us, Lord. <laughs> we are a mess and we know we need it. Okay, Well, that's good if you are thinking in those terms because that means that you recognize the spiritual sickness that sin is. But there are people in our world maybe in this room, maybe watching online, who are spiritually sick and don't know it. In fact, they go around and they're like, I got this together. I've got this. I'm spiritually righteous. Well, there were certainly people in the days of Jesus that were that way, and Jesus had some pretty straightforward words for them, some pretty strong words for them. And he's going to talk to us about that in the context of how do I get forgiveness? How how am I forgiven? And Jesus is going to talk about that some more. Jesus died so that you and I could be forgiven, okay? Okay. He took, he took our punishment for us. So um, to kind of get set up this first miracle, okay? And Mark goes into much more detail than Matthew does. Matthew is kind of like me. He likes to cut to the chase. And, but I'm going to give you a little bit of the Mark stuff because there's that. But to set that up, I want to just kind of paint a picture. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you have a house, that you have gone and gotten a mortgage to, to buy. So you... You own a house, okay, right? You know what I mean when I put it in quotes? It means really the bank owns your house until you pay the bank for all of the costs. So let's say you're two years into your 30-year mortgage, 28 years to go. Yeah, this is my house. And um, you've been going paycheck to paycheck for months. And there's some things in the car that need fixing, but you're kind of putting it off because you're like, I don't really have the money for that. So, And, you know, there's some... Uh, other things in the house that could, you know, need some upgrades or fixing or, but you're just, you're just kind of paycheck to paycheck, you know, hopefully I'm going to catch up. And the AC goes out, not the window unit, central air and heat goes out. And you know that that's probably at least five grand, at least $5,000 to replace. You can't fix it. You got to replace it. And you're like, oh, I cannot go to family. I, I mean, it's all I can do to get them to help me with just little things. I've asked so many times. They're done with that. I don't have any friends that I would ever feel good enough about to ask to help for that. What am I going to do? And let's just say at work or at school, uh, let's just say at work, um, let's say you have a job and at that job, there's somebody there that is interested in you and asks you questions about your life. And from time to time, when you say there's something tough going on, let's just say they've offered to pray for you. And so you don't really know this person, but when you're around that person, you just sense this person cares about me and, and they pray for me. I mean, that's, that's cool. Um, and you find yourself telling them, yeah, AC went out. I cannot believe. I don't know what we're going to do. And this person says, well, let's, let's pray. 
and they pray with you, and this person prays that God would forgive you for your sins in the course of that prayer. Amen. And you're like, wait a minute, I, AC, not... Okay, thank you for praying for me. And they're like, no, I, I, there's, there's an answer to that prayer. I've got this. What, what, what do you mean you've got this? Like one of those signs in the yard, you know? Uh, well, kind of. It's covered. Don't worry about it. What do you mean? You're going to chip in and help me buy an AC unit I can't afford? Oh, no, 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 no. You're going to buy the AC unit. Oh, right, right. No, no, no. The house. I'm paying for the house. How much do you owe on it? Like, <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you because that's ridiculous. No, no, really. How much do you owe on What's the more? 180000 And they pull out a checkbook and they write a check to you for $180,000 and they hand you the check. What did you ask for? You didn't even ask. You just knew I need help for this $5,000 expense that I cannot afford. And God would be so big to meet that need. And it's a legitimate need that you still have. But what does God deliver through that person? And this is an imaginary story. I'm making it up. It didn't really happen. But if it had happened, God would have taken care of so much more than what you perceived you needed. Because you needed more than that, right? You were already paycheck to paycheck. But imagine not having to pay your mortgage. That's another sermon for another time. But you understand what I'm saying, right? It's overwhelming to think that anybody would do something like that. And yet in this story, we're going to see Jesus do something more amazing than that. In fact, so much more amazing, paying off a house is going to be like paying off an AC unit in comparison to what he actually delivers. Let's look at the story. Starting in chapter 9, starting in verse 1, Matthew writes, Jesus stepped into a boat. He crossed over and came to his own town. Now, his own town is, is um, Capernaum. So, okay, so here's our imaginary map. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Jordan River flows in. Jordan River flows out. Okay, so top up there near the top, the north end of the Sea of Galilee, is a little town called Capernaum. And this was where Jesus based his ministry out of. You know, he used to live over in Nazareth. Well, I guess for you it's over here. Okay, so Nazareth. And, but he ends up here. And this is where Peter um, is from. And I guess Peter and Andrew are from. Maybe James and John, they fish out of that town. And, and so there's everybody knowing about Jesus and what he's been going on because that's just where he's based his operations. And, and in, at the end of chapter 8, last week we saw them go across the sea. And they ended up in a region that's outside of Israel, right on the edge of the Decapolis, the Gadarenes, region of the Gadarenes. And in that region, you have Gentiles, which is basically anyone other than a Jew. And, and that's where he, he drove out demons out of the two, demoni, uh, the, two, the two guys there that were living in tombs because they were possessed by so many demons that that was the only place that the town could get them to go. And the town comes out after he delivers them, and they're like, we're so scared. We were scared of those guys. We're really scared of you, Jesus. Could you leave? Which, man, but for another time. So they come back across the lake. All right? Some men brought to him a paralyzed man. Okay, we don't know how bad the paralysis is, but they're carrying him, Mark tells us, on a mat. 
they've got a, a stretcher or, or a, a kind of a makeshift stretcher, and they're carrying him to this house. Now, we know from Mark that Jesus is inside a house, okay, and their houses in those days were pretty modest, but they weren't tiny, or at least there were some that weren't. And he's probably in one of the bigger houses, and, he, and the house is packed full of people. And he's teaching, and as usual, he's sitting, teaching. His disciples are kind of like in that little ark, a couple of rows of these guys. And, and then what happens in that day is because everything's open air, you know, and, and everybody's nosy in these villages and towns. And if something's happening, and there's never anything happening interesting in these towns until Jesus showed up, they show up wherever Jesus shows up, and they're listening in. And Jesus is fine with this. And so they cram in, and they... they, they and then they, and there's more people than can fit inside. And so they're looking in the windows, they're standing in the doorways, and there's just people out into the street. These four guys carrying this fifth fella want Jesus to heal him. He's paralyzed. If there's ever a case for mercy, this would seem like a good one. And you've got to realize that right off the bat, they're not bringing him if they don't think there's a chance, right? There's some faith here. Why else would they go to the trouble to bring him? Well, they get there and they're like, oh, we're never going to get through that. They're not going to let us through. I mean, they might let one person wiggle through, but we've got a stretcher here. How are we going to do this? And so, for, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I assume, they see what would be uh, not uncommon. Uh, uh, this is a flat-top house because they didn't have to worry about snow loads. And there's exterior stairs. Why waste inside space with stairs when you can leave those outside? So they go up the stairs. They get on the roof, which is oftentimes used as like a deck and they estimate right where about Jesus is probably right about there they bring whatever I don't know if they just go in with their hands sticks and they just start chipping away at the roof and uh, I imagine the scene if you want to see a rendition of this scene you can watch that TV series called The Chosen um, I don't know if season two maybe and uh, there's this is all playing out but the, the, Jesus is then teaching and they're, they're hearing noise and they're looking up and then chunks of clay and tile start falling and sticks and they're like and they're just kind of backing up letting this happen Jesus is like this is cool I like this little little extra drama and the religious leaders are there because they're like you know every word that Jesus says we got to scrutinize and what's he doing and who's he healing now as if that's terrible and they next thing you know this body comes down and it's and they lower this man in front of Jesus. What does Jesus do? Some men brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, okay, that's what got Jesus' attention, right? He said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now why did they bring him? They wanted him to be healed from his paralysis. And that's massive, right? If he had done that, that would have blown people away. In fact, it does when he eventually does. But what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus do that? Why? I think it's because that's what really matters. Now, there's a lot going on, and Jesus has amazing knowledge, of, and, and he's the master teacher. And so the order of things is not by accident. What he says, how he says it, who it's for, he can minister to his enemies and his followers at the same time with the same words. It's just amazing what he can do. And, and so the religious leaders are there, and they're like, they suck in their breath, and they're like, <gasps> what did he just say? Let me say it again for you. Take heart, son. First of all, how personal is that, right? So... Son, right? It's like you already are one, right? It's like this is your sins are forgiven. Gasp. 
Why would that be a problem? Well, the religious leaders are actually thinking well about this. You've got to give them credit. They spotted something. They, they said, this is not right in one sense, in this sense. In the Bible, it teaches, in the Old Testament scriptures, it teaches that the only one who can forgive sin is holy, 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 our creator, right? I can't forgive you sins. I have no power. I have no authority. I'm a sinner. How could I forgive you of sins? I mean, I can forgive you for sinning against me, but I can't forgive you for your sins. And I can't declare you forgiven for your sins. This is Old Testament. I can now. I can't then because why? Because I'm not God. And they're looking at this man named Jesus from Nazareth, and they're going, man, he can't do this. (laughs) No pun intended. Right? But he's not just a man, is he? And they don't understand that. Their eyes have not opened to that truth yet. Others, they're starting to open their eyes. They're starting to see. And this is a process that occurs. And a lot of people get it, but a lot of people don't over that three years. And then when the resurrection happens, it opens more eyes. And the movement of Jesus starts and starts just rippling through our our world. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. And that's exactly the the law he was breaking. He was trying to to be God. Because he is. Okay, and he, um, and, and so that's that's the problem they have with him. Now Jesus has insight into that. He knows why they're there. He knows they're looking for problems. And he, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, "Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are no longer, uh, I'm sorry, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and walk?" Now I, had tr- I used to. Have, I know this is obvious, probably to you, but it was always confusing to me. I never understood this, so I will explain it to you like I finally think I understand it which is easier to say. I kept going back to linguistically, which is easier to say, which is totally irrelevant here, which is easier to say. In other words, which is easier to demonstrate I can say and is true. Your sins are forgiven. Well, how can we prove that's true or not? Or get up and walk, paralyzed man. Oh, we can tell if that worked, right? Because he gets up and walks, and that's exactly what happens. Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk which is easier to say, get up and walk. But I want to, you to know, in other words, I want you to hear, see my authority, not just hear me talk about my authority, that the Son of Man, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, has authority. He could say all authority, but authority, on this case, on earth, to forgive sins. Okay? So I'm going to throw out a word. Okay, so we've already said Jesus has authority over disease, demons, death, his disciples, danger, damnation. Okay? All right? And I'm using a religious word that we tend to use otherwise, a lot of other people, during the week, and they don't even know what it means. This is why it's spelled D-A-M-N, because it's short for this word, damnation, which is basically sending someone into eternal torment and punishment in a place called hell. And Jesus has authority over that too. And it's called forgiveness. And when you and I are forgiven by our creator, when we don't deserve that, we, can re- we, we, we are delivered from that. And he has authority to do that. And that's what he wants to do. And he would say that's what he came to do, to deliver us from sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself. 
Okay? He wants to forgive us. He can forgive us. So, I mean, maybe we should back up and ask, maybe I should ask the question of you. And I think this is okay to ask. Do you believe that Jesus can forgive you? Not just can he forgive, can he forgive you? Because you know what needs to be forgiven in your life if you're at all observant and aware, self-aware. And if you're not, then you're part of the righteous crowd he's going to talk about in a minute. But I think most of you are probably aware enough to know I need forgiveness for sins because I've sinned and I know that before a holy creator, I've got no chance to stand. Okay, that's why you can go to prison and talk to the people, guys and gals in prison, and most of them are going to go, yeah, I'm guilty. I need Jesus, that's for sure. <laughs> they may not believe, but they can at least say, I have no problem acknowledging that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. It's those of us that aren't in trouble with the world that sometimes have trouble admitting what is true for us. And if we don't admit it, then we don't go looking for it, and we don't receive forgiveness that God has for us. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up, and he went home, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Now, um, what a great, you know, what a great ending, right? Um, The man goes home, forgiven, and healed, both. He got the new AC unit and the house. And, oh, by the way, eternal life. Okay, I mean, he got the whole, you know, the whole trifecta there. What's interesting is when the crowd saw this, so you're going to see this, and I think this is true maybe in all the Gospels, but in Matthew for sure. When when, When Matthew refers to the crowd, it's code for these are people who are around and maybe even around Jesus, but they're not with him. These are people that, are, that fill our churches in America. These are people who say on the surveys, I believe in God in America. And they're not walking with him anymore than you and I walk with the President of the United States when, wherever he is and we're physically with him. We're not. We're, that's not happening. There's a difference between walking behind him and following him in his words, ways, and works. Okay? So when we see the crowd saw this and were filled with awe, Wow, okay, that's not the same as conversion. That's not the same as being born again. That might be part of it if you are, but you can be amazed and not changed. Right? We watch TV, and we're amazed at things we see, and that doesn't change our lives. Filled with all, they, it says they even praise God. That sounds like worship. Wait a minute, can't that be, mean they're saved? Well, it could some, probably a mix. But most probably not, because this is, again, the crowd is kind of code for the broad road that leads to destruction. But they do recognize his authority. Now, verse 9, we move to a, Matthew moves and he says, I'm going to tell you my story. And, and he can tell a testimony briefly, let me tell you. Look at this, just in a couple of verses, Matthew writes, As Jesus went on from there, still in Capernaum, He's walking out. He's leaving the house. The crowd is following him. They want to see what he's going to do next. Like maybe he'll, you know, who knows what he's going to do next? These religious leaders are still around. Maybe we'll get a showdown. Uh, let's see what happens. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Let's just stop there and let's let's, let's talk about Matthew for a sec. So Matthew is a tax collector. And in that day, you think IRS agents are not popular. These are IRS agents who work for another country that's taking over America, let's just say. It would be like that. 
It's like, um, I don't even want to make it up. I'm just going to say it. So what's happening here is Rome is occupying Israel. And so they're under the heel of Rome. And Matthew is willing to collect taxes from his own people to pay Rome and get paid for it. And, oh, by the way, because Rome allows it, he can actually charge them more taxes than they owe and, and, and line his own pockets. So he's a traitor. He's a greedy. Um, he, he's greedy. He's, 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 they just have no... So he's, got, he's exiled from the synagogue, from the temple, from his people. He, he, he's, just, he's a social outcast. He's considered to be as bad as a prostitute was in that day. He's the bottom of sinners. He's like at the bottom of the barrel. And the only people that would, be, would hang out with him are the other tax collectors and the prostitutes and the people who are in that category of social outcasts, okay? So it really shouldn't surprise us that there's this crowd of people in Capernaum following Jesus around, and he's not in the crowd. He's in his tax collector's booth, okay? Now, we have a hint that he has been listening, it's really hard not to know what's happening in a, that small town that has where nothing happens. And so when something happens, people take note. He's in this booth. And, a, and what I also find interesting is the crowd is around Jesus, and yet he doesn't pick one of them. Isn't that interesting? He picks somebody who's not in the crowd. He picks the unlikely candidate, and he goes to them, and he says, I want you. I'm choosing you to follow me. Now, remember, when he called James and John, Peter and Andrew, when he called them, we said that the, the, the Greek language said that was a command. He didn't just say, hey, you want to go for a ride? It was like, come. Okay? Now, I don't know if Jesus ever said come to somebody and they didn't. I don't know. But Matthew did. And, and Jesus really calls all disciples to come, I think, with authority. And maybe they did and. I'm guessing they probably there were many that he called that didn't. I don't know. But this certainly happens today. And there's times when he calls me to do something and I don't obey like Matthew and, and the others do. And so this is convicting, challenging, I think. But he followed him. And and the the story indicates that really all of the disciples left pretty much everything when they did this. Okay. Now, we don't know for sure. I mean, Peter appears to be married. So when he left, did he leave wife and family behind? Did he leave a home behind and, and it was still his? And, and did, I, We don't know. We don't, we're not given all that detail. But it appears that Jesus calls them to live a life without simplicity because the kingdom of God is at hand. This is an urgent mission, and you don't need all that other stuff to bog you down from this. That's the... It's implied. So, you, you know, it's not the same as a direct, this is what it says. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. So what has happened now? I think Matthew's been converted. He's come to know the Lord. He's truly had a heart change that says, I don't just, I'm not just wowed by you, Jesus. I'm in. I am following. And I am I'm going to follow you to the ends of the earth. And I'm going to leave behind whatever I have to leave behind to make that happen. Oh, well, if I'm going to leave it all behind, I might as well throw a really great party. Okay, so you're in a small town where nothing happens and the rich guy throws a massive party and invites all his tax collector buddies and who knows who else and Jesus and his disciples. 
Okay, man, that's going to be fun. I can't wait to see how this plays out because there are going to be some interesting things said at that party. And we're going to eat well and drink well, if nothing else. And so that's what happens. He throws this party and he says, many tax collectors. That means tax collectors from other regions are showing up, right? Because this is his, this is Matthew's region. <laughs> and they're, so they're coming. Sinners and came and ate with his disciples, which is don't do that socially. That is not okay. Religiously, that is not okay. Because to eat with someone else is to say, I am fellowshipping with you as a brother. So Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he's eating with them as brother. And so the religious leaders, of course, have all kinds of heartburn about this. And they let him know. But they don't quite go to Jesus. They ask the disciples. I don't know if it's because he wasn't convenient or if they didn't want to ask him because they didn't want to, like, I don't want to engage Jesus. He always wins those things. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher, they're calling him teacher, like an equal, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Parentheses, because that's a problem. We're going to have to talk to somebody about that. Can't eat with tax collectors and sinners. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That makes sense. Sounds like a pretty simple uh, visual, right? You're not going to the doctor. I was going to say you don't go to the doctor unless you're sick, but of course today's physicians, you know, once a year, if you don't go for any other reason or you can't come see us. Sorry, I'm um, I'm not bitter. All right, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. That's correct. But go and learn what this means. And he pulls in some Old Testament because he wants to make it very clear. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay? What is the whole religious system that the scribes and the Pharisees is based on? Sacrifice, especially your money. Give me your money and everything else. Give me, give me, you know, sacrifice to the Lord, right? And who reaps the benefits of that? And so that's what they're about. And God is like, mercy, that's what I want. Right? Mercy. In obedience, other places, to obey is better than sacrifice. Mercy is better than sacrifice here. For I have not come. Here's the statement that you need to hang on to. This is the one he's making that's really driving home the whole point of today. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Okay, so... Um, you could have even put righteous in parentheses, or I'm sorry, in quotes, so-called righteous, those who think they're righteous, or actually people who are righteous. If there, was, if there was such a thing, you wouldn't have to put it in quotes. You could say, if there was a righteous person, Jesus isn't here for them, they don't need me, but there's nobody that fits that category. So that means it must be people who think they're righteous. Who would that be? Teachers of the law? But it wasn't limited to them. There was plenty of proud people in that day, and there are plenty of proud people today, here, now. And if you think, I don't need Jesus, then you're righteous, so Jesus won't come to you. That's fine. Because he is not going to force himself, because even though he's sovereign, he gives you the responsibility to respond or not respond to him. He gives you that kind of freedom. Okay? Otherwise, that wouldn't be right for him to expect you to do something and you have no choice in the matter? I have come. This is why Jesus says, I've come to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. And when he calls us, what does he call us to? Mercy. And what does that mean? I forgive. Okay? Some of you are loaded up 
with guilt. Okay? I know it because I struggle with guilt. And I know better. Okay? I mean, when you preach about it enough, you can preach to yourself. And I can preach to myself. I do. I don't always listen to my sermons. You don't always either. You hear them. You hear them. Right? We're all in this together, right? I've been to other sermons. I haven't listened to them either. Right? Because why? Because we're hard-hearted, hard-headed, stubborn, and we think we're okay. Because we're better than somebody else. Next, I'm better than them. I haven't killed anyone lately. Well, that's good. Yay, should I? I mean, right? But before a holy God, are we a sinner or not? Because if I am before a holy God, anything less than be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect is grounds for the pit, for the abyss, the lake of fire. You call it what you want. That's what we deserve. That's why they call it mercy. We're not getting what we deserve. And we need it and we should want it. And we should want it for other people. And when we have received it and we get it and it really clicks with the head and the heart, when we really get this mercy and forgiveness thing, we do want it for other people. And that's when we start to get courageous and share it with other people. That's good stuff. Friends and family groups, it's just one of many ways that you can invite people into your life, point them to Jesus, blame it on the preacher, and people can come and find mercy. That's why we're doing this. That's why we do everything that we do. Ideally, it's so that people will find mercy when they don't expect it. Because the doctor's in, and he's here for the sick. But the only people that qualify to be sick are those who acknowledge their need for a doctor. If you go see a doctor and he does his checkup and then you sit at the desk and he puts a bottle of pills in front of you and says, here, you're going to need these. And you're like, he says, take one a day, you'll be good. And you're like, why? I don't need those. And why are you saying that? Because you don't need those. Well, because you're fine. I came in, I felt fine. I've been through this checkup. I haven't heard anything that's changed that. I'm fine. Oh, no, no. Let, Let me tell you the rest of the story. The doctor says, he says, actually, you have a terminal illness. Yep. And the symptoms are pretty much non-existent except for this. You're going to die from this disease if you don't take those pills. Now, I don't know how long the doctor has to keep talking to convince you to start taking those pills, but I'm probably going to take the first pill I've ever taken without water pretty soon after he says, you're going to die if you don't take these pills. (laughs) I might ask for a second opinion after I've had a pill, okay? You see what I'm saying? We don't take the medicine until we believe the, the prognosis, the diagnosis. And there's, we have a, a belief problem in our world, right? People don't believe they're sinners. Or they believe they're sinners, but they don't believe that's a problem. They don't believe they're going to stand before their creator one day and answer for every single thing they've ever said, every single thing they've ever done, and everything they've ever thought. It's all written down. He has everything recorded. He knows exactly what you and I think about everything. And yet he still extends mercy. I don't get it. I don't understand. He's that good. Okay? So let me end with this. I'm in 14. This last part is quick. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast? So John there is John the Baptist's disciples, okay? 
the forerunner of Jesus. So John's Jesus' cousin, good guy. We love John the Baptist, okay? J the B, I call him. John the Baptist's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And then Jesus gives a simple explanation. He answered, how can the guests of the groom or the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? What do you do when you go to a wedding at the reception? You celebrate, right? You party. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the groom, my followers are the bride, and, the, and I'm with them. And so, no, they don't need to fast yet. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Okay, well, he went, ascended to heaven. And then they will fast. How long will we fast? Until he comes back. It's part of the reason we fast. Because we are still living in a world that grieves our heart and soul. Watch the news, you grieve. You go to work, you grieve. You, you, you feel the pains in your body and you grieve. And all of this is temporary. It's temporary. The kingdom of God is ahead and at hand. And he says, they will fast. And that's, that's going to happen. And that's where we are now. Jesus is gone, but he's coming back. In the meantime, yes, part of our spiritual discipline regimen is we fast. No one sows a patch. Then he gives us this last two images. And these two images point to a reality that you and I need to need to latch onto and really grab a hold of because I think the American church struggles with this. I think all churches do, but I only, I only know what I see. The one, okay, so no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse, okay? When you wash stuff, it, it shrinks, right? Or stretches or it changes. And you put a new one, put that new patch on the old, and then you wash it. Well, this has already shrunk, but the patch hasn't. So now the patch is going to shrink, and it's going to pull at the threads, and it's going to scrunch it or tear or whatever. And that's what he's saying. That's a picture. And then he says this. He says, Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. Okay, I got some people's attention because I'm talking about wine. So we have a goatskin pouch is kind of what wine would be in. Okay? They would take goatskin. It's like leather. And they would, so if you had new goat skin, a new pouch, you could pour new wine or grape juice, right? It hasn't fermented yet. And you pour it in there and make sure you leave a little room. And then what happens? Over time, as it ferments, it expands. The bag stretches and everything's good because it's, it's new pliable skins. You drink that and then, um, not all at once, okay? Well, you drink that and then you need to, I got some more new wine I need, so you, if you pour it in the same pouch and the grape juice ferments and expands, what's going to happen to the skin? Eventually, it's going to burst or leak or crack. Or, and, and, and that's not good. It's old wineskins. It's not for new wine. You put new wine in new wineskins. What's he talking about? This patch, this new patch, this old cloth. What's he talking about? He's saying there's two covenants. There's the old covenant and there's the new covenant. And Jesus said, I've come with the new covenant. Jeremiah talked about this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Okay? This is not a surprise. This isn't like God got somewhere and he got to the point and he's like, okay, this is what the Jews is not working. I'm going to plan B. It's not that at all, okay? Despite the fact that maybe everybody, starting with Adam and Eve, hasn't really responded as God would like, he has allowed this in such a way that it all funnels to mercy in Jesus, forgiveness in Jesus, Okay? So it's not undoing the Old Testament. It's, it's fulfilling the Old Testament. Okay? But we don't take what Jesus is teaching and try to shove it into the old religious forms. It doesn't work. 
Some of those things are irrelevant, and some of those things are foundational truths that we need to continue to revisit. That's why we don't ignore the Old Testament. Okay? It's the foundation to the Scriptures we, we read in the New Testament. But if the covenant we cling to is the new covenant in Jesus Christ, that's the covenant that matters. The others have served their purposes. Okay? I don't go back and try to make my old iPhone work. Why? Because it served its purposes. It's in the drawer, or I sold it. I have a newer one now. That's the one I'm, I'm going to use until it's old. Well, we, we get one of these, and it's Jesus. And it's perfect. And that's why he says, so it's not about fasting. It's about recognizing who's in the room. Who are we worshiping? And why does it matter? So, will you, will you, do you want God to forgive you? Of course you do. Do you believe he can forgive you? And then here's the real question. If you say yes to that, do you believe he will forgive you? Because he promises if you confess your sins, he will cleanse you and fill you. He promises, 1 John 1, 9, and other places. Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Some of you aren't forgiven because you haven't forgiven. And the reason that's true is because you're not truly a follower of Christ yet. Because true followers of Christ have received the grace of God and want to forgive. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I always feel like forgiving people. There's plenty of people I've forgiven I have not felt like forgiven at the moment. Nobody in here, of course, right? Because we don't wait till we feel like it to forgive somebody. We forgive in faith, and we believe that the emotion will catch up one day, maybe. But we believe that the right thing to do is to forgive that person, okay? And, and before you get too high and mighty and say, yep, I'm done, I've forgiven, I've forgiven everybody, well, there's always tomorrow. There's those people that are going to hurt you too. You're going to forgive them too? So G- G- God, Jesus and God, are, they're saying... There's a connection between our heart and our ability to forgive other people. That's, a, that's a, an indicator of whether or not you're probably forgiven. And that should scare you if you're not forgiving people. That should scare you a lot. But here's the thing. Ask God to forgive you for not forgiving them. And then he will give you what you need to forgive them. Because he's not going to ask you to do something and then not give you the ability to do it, that would be cruel. And that is so not God. Right? If this was easy, right, I'd write a book. (laughs) I know it's not easy. Easy maybe to follow, not easy to do, right? Because we don't feel like forgiving people who have hurt us. (laughs) I I don't know how Jesus felt about Judas Iscariot. I imagine there were parts of him that didn't want to forgive him for betraying him, but he did. And I've done some pretty wretched stuff, and that's just talking about in my head, and he's forgiven me. And he knows it all. And nobody knows it all except him, and he's forgiven me. Why wouldn't I forgive someone else? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for 
for helping us understand a little better today, hopefully, how to receive the forgiveness of God. We saw the faith of these men who believed that Jesus could heal. And Jesus gave them a, something even better. He, he gave them He gave this man that was paralyzed forgiveness for sin. And Lord, we have things we need from you too. We need healings. We need help. We need hope. And you come to us and you say, your sins are forgiven. We need that more than anything. It's why you came. Lord, I pray that we would seek mercy from you because we certainly don't deserve this forgiveness and neither do those people that we need to forgive and yet we do by grace through faith forgive them right now I pray that all over the place right now all over this room I'm watching online people are saying I forgive so and so I forgive him I forgive her I forgive them it could be an individual it could be a group of people It could be someone you know and have known all your life, and it could be someone that you don't even know their name. It could be the person that cuts you off on the interstate on the way here. And it could be your mama or your child or your best friend. Lord, give us the grace and mercy to forgive. We need it. We need to do it. And in some cases, they need it too. Help us have the courage to step out in faith and do that. Help us to recognize that the first time we confess our sins to you and you forgive us, that's called being born from above. That's spiritual birth. That is conversion from enemy of God to son or daughter of God. That's what we call conversion in Christianity. It means something happened. Lord, I pray that you would awaken us to the reality if that's happened to us, that we might step into that, that we might lean into that, that we might believe that, and then we might allow that to be the the North Star in our life going forward. And Lord, if we've already received that or we've just received that, I pray we would have a heart and a desire to, to show that mercy to other people who maybe have never heard that before that we would be the person praying for that person in the office when they have concerns, that we would be the one willing to point them to the one who forgives their sins. And Lord, as we think about our friends and family groups this week that we're launching into for the next six weeks, I pray that the conversations that happen in those small groups of people around the book of Matthew would be life-changing. I don't just want them to be nice. I don't just want them to be comfortable. I want them to be life-changing, Lord, because that's what you want. You want disciples, people who respond to the command to come and follow me. And Lord, that means that we need to follow you and lead others to do the same. And Lord, that is what you've given us to do. That is the one job we have. Give us the courage and the faith to step out and do that where we live, work, learn, and play. In Christ's name we pray. Lord, as we anticipate the Lord's Supper here in a moment, we take a crust of bread. It's it's a symbol of the body of Christ broken for us 
on the cross. Like bread broken so that it can be eaten like a, a kernel of seed that hits the ground and breaks open so that a stalk can, and life can come forth. Lord, from the tomb came life. And Lord, we need it. And you said, Jesus said, I came that we might have life to the full. And I pray that we would yearn for that and realize that the pathway to life is through the path of mercy. And may we use, may we receive it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.